For some redemptive historical context for our text this morning, let's take a look together at Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Micah's nestled kind of in the middle of, of all those minor prophets. So if you go past Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah, you'll get to Micah. Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be amongst the Gentiles, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all, all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off and your sacred pillars from your midst and you shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities and I will execute vengeance and anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. Now let's turn to our text in the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. 
Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the, and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And, and behold, the, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country in another way. So far our reading from God's Word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text this morning it begins by giving us two little details that we didn't get yesterday when we considered the Christmas story. Our text for this morning begins this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Matthew's giving us two indications of setting that he did not give us in, in, in the previous passage. He's telling us where Jesus was born and he's telling us when Jesus was born. Now, he's already told us twice that Jesus was the son of David. Last week, we saw in the, in the genealogy that he was from the line of King David. And then yesterday, we saw that Joseph, David's direct descendant, Joseph adopted Jesus and took him as his very own son. But here, Matthew shows us that Jesus was not just the great, 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 great grandson of King David. He was also born in the very same town as King David. He was born in Bethlehem in Judea. But a lot of time has passed. About a thousand years have passed between the time of David and the time of Jesus. But even though so much time has passed, Bethlehem has not gotten much bigger. It was still just a little bitty town, kind of, kind of, kind of a far-flung suburb of the big city of Jerusalem. But even though he was born in the town of David, again, Jesus was not born during the days of David or during the days of any of David's sons. In fact, the man that sat on the royal throne in Jerusalem, he wasn't even a member of David's family at all. Matthew tells us that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. 
Not Herod the son of David, not Herod the king of the Jews, just Herod the king. You see, Herod, he, he wasn't even an Israelite. He was, he was an Edomite. If you know your Old Testament well, you know that if he's an Edomite, he's a descendant of Israel's brother Esau. And not only was he an Edomite, not only was he not an Israelite, he wasn't a man who loved and followed God either. See, the people of Israel during this time, they were under the control of the Roman Empire. And at this point in time, an an emperor named Augustus was ruling in Rome, and and he had given Herod the throne in Jerusalem. And he he, he hadn't given Herod that throne because he was wise, or because he was just, or because he was caring. He had given Herod the throne because Herod was a man who knew how to keep the peace and collect the taxes. See, this Herod, he was not a good man at all. Historians tell us that he actually murdered many members of his own family, and and, and he had killed or he had enslaved or mistreated many of the people that he was supposed to be taking care of. Now, by this point in his, in his reign, he was, he, was, he was approaching the age of 70, but, but he had not gotten any gentler or any wiser with age. So things don't look good. There's a wicked king on the throne in Jerusalem ruling over and mistreating God's people. And Jesus, who's supposed to be the savior of the world, he's just a little baby. He was probably still less than two years old. But all the same... All the same, in this text, we're going to see that though God's people are oppressed and weak, and though God's Messiah is small and helpless, still the nations come to seek God's shepherd. In the first six verses of this passage, we'll we'll see how they come to Jerusalem looking for the king. And then in the next six verses, we'll see how they come to Bethlehem to worship the child. Now, after telling us the setting, after telling us that Jesus was born during Herod's reign in the little town of Bethlehem, Matthew tells us that perhaps the least likely people of all come into Jerusalem one day with strange news and strange questions. He says, behold, pay attention, look, wise men from the east, wise men from the east Come to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now I said that these were the least likely people of all, and, and, and they really were. If you were living in Israel during the first century while Jesus was on earth or afterwards, and if you were going to make up a story or, or if you were going to add things to the story about the birth of the Messiah, who do you think you would say came to visit him? Somebody important, probably. You might say that when Jesus was born, the king came to visit him, and, and, and he, proclaimed, he proclaimed Jesus king of kings, and, and he submitted to him. Or, or, or maybe you'd say that when Jesus was born, the, the priests came down, and, and they visited him, and, and they proclaimed him the Messiah. They, they proclaimed him the great high priest. You might even say that when Jesus was born, the emperor himself came from Rome and and visited Jesus and told the people everywhere, listen to what I say, a child, a child shivers in the cold. Let's bring him silver and gold. But that's not who comes. Now, most of us have been listening to this story since we were very, very young. 
And even if we didn't grow up in church, every time we, we might have seen a, 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 a nativity scene or, or a Christmas card where, 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 there, where there are these three wise men, we, we, we see them bringing their gifts to the baby Jesus. And so we might think, well, well, of course. Of course the wise men came. That's part of the Christmas story. But Matthew includes this behold for a reason. This is far from the most likely crowd of people to come to celebrate Jesus' birth with Mary and Joseph. Now, let me explain. These men, they're called wise men in our translation. In the Greek, it's magi or magoi. They're the same sort of people that we might have encountered when reading through the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, the emperor Nebuchadnezzar, he has this strange dream and, and he wants it interpreted. So he calls his magicians and astrologers and sorcerers and Chaldeans to interpret it. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 2. But these men, all of these men who represent all the wisdom and religion and magic of Babylon, they are powerless to understand what's going on. It's only when Daniel is given special revelation from the living God that anyone is able to interpret the king's dream. But these men that we see here, these men that are coming and looking for Jesus, they're not Daniel. They're not, they're not wise Israelites. They're not, they're not even worshipers of the true and living God. They are pagan priests and sorcerers and magicians. They're Gentiles. They don't know anything about God's promises to Abraham and David and the whole nation of Israel. They probably know nothing about those promises at all. But here they are. Behold, Matthew says, behold, wise men from the east, these pagan Gentiles, indeed the most pagan of pagans, the most unbelieving of unbelievers, leaders in false religions, they're coming into Jerusalem and they're looking for the king of the Jews. So they go throughout the city, maybe, maybe asking in the marketplace, maybe looking in the synagogues, maybe knocking door to door, asking the people, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. See, while they were still back at home, maybe in Babylon or Persia, somewhere far off in the east, they saw some kind of amazing sign, some kind of disturbance up in the heavens that made them absolutely sure that some kind of king had been born, some kind of Jewish king some kind of king that they, they absolutely had to go to worship. Somehow, God had, had, had lit up the night sky in such a way that these men were sure that the king of the Jews had been born. And they were so sure that this was a king they needed to look for that they just drop everything and take their most expensive stuff and set out on a journey that may well have taken them more than a year. And they go all the way from way out east to Jerusalem. After all, the sign in the heavens had told them that it was going to be a Jewish king, right? So the obvious place then to look would have been the Jewish capital. And if he wasn't there, then there likely would have been someone to tell them how to find him, where to look for him. And so they come to Jerusalem. And they knock on doors and they ask their question all over the place. And finally, their question comes to the ears of Herod. And Herod, he's, he's close to 70, but he's still sharp. And he's still suspicious. And he's still as ruthless as ever. So he decides that he needs to take control of this situation lest it get out of hand. And so he, he hears the question, and, and you can imagine the gears start turning in his mind. A, a king of the Jews has been born. 
Well, I know that's not me, and, and I know that's not my son or my grandson. We, we're, we're Edomites, not Israelites. This can only mean one thing. Someone is coming to take my throne away. He's troubled, our text tells us. And the word that Matthew uses here, it suggests a, a, a deep-rooted terror. Herod hears this question, and he just goes white as a sheet, and he shakes, and he trembles, and, and Jerusalem trembles with him. And so he goes to the scribes and the religious leaders, and he asks them, where's the king of the Jews going to be born? Or rather, I should say, and Matthew says, he asks them where the Messiah is going to be born. Notice that. He's not asking them where they might expect the king of the Jews to be born. He's asking them, where has God told you that the Messiah is going to be born? And so whatever, whatever answer they give him is going to make him responsible for all of his actions going forward. He's going to hear God's word from them, and he's going to be given two possible responses. Either, either go and worship God's Messiah, or take his stand and rebel against God's Messiah. He seems to have no doubts about the Messiah who is to come. He seems to have no doubts about the truthfulness of God's promises, but he is stubbornly in rebellion against everything that God has promised. But, but he goes and he asks them. And in response, they quote an important and a very well-known passage from the Old Testament, from the prophecy of Micah, that prophecy that we read. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They tell him what Matthew's already told us in verse 1. The Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. David's son was going to be born in David's city, David's town. And he would be born and he would be set aside like David to save his people from the rulers who oppressed God's people. In the book of Micah, the earlier chapters, we didn't read these, but you can look it up for yourself if you want in Micah 2 and 3 and 4. God has some harsh words for Israel's rulers. In Micah chapter 2, God tells Israel's prophets and princes that he has condemned them for their wickedness. They have abused God's people. They have stolen from them. They have lied to them. They have oppressed them. And then in Micah 3, God then tells his people's prophets and priests and princes that their worlds were about to be turned upside down. The wealth of the rulers was going to be turned to poverty. The words of the prophets would be shown to be folly and darkness. And those who worshipped the Lord in an idolatrous way were going to be wiped out. In Micah 3, God tells those who rule over his people that he was going to pay them back for all the wicked that they had done to his people. And he told them in Micah 4 that the Lord was going to throw them out of Jerusalem and set up his own ruler instead. A ruler who would gather all the nations into Jerusalem. A ruler who would, who would take pagans and unbelievers and bring them and unite them with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Herod could see these prophecies coming true right before his very eyes. He knew, he knew that he was an unjust and wicked ruler. And he knew that God was, was very likely to remove him, just like he had removed Israel's unjust rulers before. And, and here, right before his eyes, he can see God's promises coming true. People from far-off nations, like God promised in Micah 4, people from far-off nations were coming into Jerusalem, and they were looking for the Messiah. 
And before we go on to the second point, I, I want to point something out to you. Something, uh, sometimes we, we get the idea that if we can just present people with all the right arguments, if we can just give them all the information they need, they'll have to come to Christ. If we can just clearly show them what the Bible says, if we can use all of our apologetic arguments against them, they'll have to come to Christ. But here in these first six verses, Matthew shows us three different groups of people. And each of these three different groups of people have been given the exact same information. A sign from God in the heavens has told them all that the Messiah has been born. And then the words of God in the Scriptures have told them that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. But out of these three groups, only one of them responds in the right way. See, this is the last we hear about these religious leaders until we see them opposing John the Baptist later on in his gospel. And Herod, well, we'll see next year, uh, yeah, next year, next week, how he responds. Just read on in chapter 2 and you'll see how Herod responds to this news. The only people who respond the way they ought to respond are these altogether unexpected pagans. It is our responsibility. We as Christians are anointed as prophets. It is our responsibility to present people with the truth. It's our responsibility to confront them with the facts about Jesus Christ. But if God does not shine his light in their hearts, making their dead hearts alive, those facts are going to go ignored or they're just going to provoke more and more and more hostility. And so these religious leaders, they ignore the Christ. And Herod wants to destroy the Christ. And only these wise men, only these magi, only these unexpected, unbelieving outsiders who have come to Jerusalem to seek the king go on to Bethlehem to worship the child. But before they go on from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, Herod calls them in. And like we might expect from Herod, he he calls them in secretly. Maybe he's gotten so used to plotting that this is his normal way of calling people in, or, or maybe he's being extra cautious trying to get the situation under control so that nobody else will will go off to Bethlehem and look for the Messiah. But he calls them in secretly, and, and he really drills them. He wants every last bit of information. And here we see a schemer at work. He had carefully asked the scribes and the priests before, and now he's carefully asking the magi what they know, the wise men what they know. And the word that Matthew's using here almost gives the impression that this was an interrogation. He's, he, he's, he's grilling them for all the information they have. He wants to be absolutely certain, absolutely sure about all the variables before he makes his plans. He asks them, exactly when did the star appear? Exactly when did that sign from God appear to you? And again here, we see his hypocrisy Because he seems to have no doubts that that this sign, and and even the timing of this sign in the heavens is significant. He's not not about to say, well, well, it's just a comet, it's just a star, whatever. No, he knows that God is at work. And he's still rebelling. He's acting just like Esau, his forefather. He knows the power of God, and he knows the promises of God, but he despises them both, and he looks for his own way. But then having interrogated them, having gained all the information they had, he sends them off. And he tells them, go and and, and search diligently for the child. And and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And I don't know if these magi don't, don't know what kind of man Herod is. They were foreigners after all. Or if they were just too excited about going to see the Messiah that they, that they, just, that they, just, 
that they just let his character slide, but, but they listen to him and, and they go off to Bethlehem. And if I can just pull back the curtain a little bit right now, this is not just a story about a wicked king and some foreigners who seek the Messiah. This is a story with immense cosmic significance. The, the fate of the universe hangs in the balance here. We're going to explore this idea more next week, but, but, but know that Bethlehem is about to become a battlefield. And Herod's master, the devil, that wicked serpent, he's using Herod here in an effort to destroy the Messiah. There is more going on here than the Magi know. There, there's more going on here than, 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 than the scribes and priests know. It's likely there's more going on here than Herod himself knows. But we haven't gotten there yet. The, the Magi make their way from, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and, and on their way to Bethlehem, they, they see the star again. God's sign in the sky, it, it points the way for them to get to the Messiah. They, they had seen it once back in their native land, and, and, and now here they see it a second time. God's telling them that though Herod was a wicked schemer, what he had told them about the prophecy in Micah was in fact correct. The Messiah had been born in Bethlehem. And it's just a short trip from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, about the distance from here to downtown Owen Sound. So if they were walking, it might have taken them about three hours or so. But Matthew tells us that, that when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Matthew's just piling joy upon joy upon joy upon joy here. They didn't just rejoice, he says. They rejoiced with joy. They didn't just rejoice with joy. They rejoiced with great joy. They didn't just rejoice with great joy. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They hadn't been misled. Their long, long journey from out east had been worth it. They were about to see the Messiah. They were about to see the newborn king of the Jews. So, so you can imagine their, their, their happiness, their, their excitement, their joy. You can imagine the smiles that must have been filling their faces. And, and you can imagine how strange this must have looked to the people between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. They look down that dusty road and, and, and they see these men decked out in all the finery of, of eastern priests and magicians hurrying down that road, grinning from ear to ear, laughing, singing, cheering, rejoicing with exceedingly great joy. And, and then you can imagine the impact this must have had when these strange men from far off lands rush into that little town of Bethlehem, still guided by God's light, rushing down the streets in all their pomp, and finery until they finally come to one specific house. And they don't come to Bethlehem like they came to Jerusalem. They don't ask around for directions to God's Messiah's house. No, no, God is guiding them now, showing them the way to where his son is with his mom. And I don't know if they, if, if they straightened out their robes or, or dusted themselves off before they went in or if they just ran right in in all their excitement. But either way, they come to Bethlehem and by this time, I'm sure their cheeks were aching from smiling so much. They come to Bethlehem and they come to the house and they go right into the house and they see the child. God's sign in the heavens has brought them to the right place. And when they see the child, they don't hesitate. They go right in, they fall down on their faces before him, and they worship him, and they give him their treasures. They've traveled so far and so long, and they're finally there. But what are they doing? 
They're giving tribute. They're giving treasures. But, but you don't give tribute to babies. You give tribute to kings. They're prostrating. They're, they're, they're bowing themselves down with their faces to the ground. But, but you don't bow down before babies. You bow down before kings or important people or you bow down before God himself. And they're not just giving tribute and they're not just bowing themselves down. They're worshiping. These unexpected people from an unexpected place have come to an unexpected house in an unimportant town to see this unexpected baby, and now they're doing the most unexpected thing of all. These grown men, with their beards and their robes and their treasures, they they fall down on their faces before a baby. But you don't worship babies. You worship God. But Mary does not confront these strange men in her house. She doesn't tell them to get up off the ground and stop worshiping her baby. She knows that what they are doing is right. In fact, it's not just right, it's the only appropriate thing to do. The Savior of the nations has come into the world. These were religious leaders in pagan religions. They, more than anyone else, they knew the futility and the emptiness of seeking after false gods. And when they come here, when they come to Bethlehem, and they meet the true God in His humanity, their joy turns into worship, and they fall down before Him, and they give Him their offerings, and they give Him the tribute that is due this child, this baby, who despite His infancy, despite His youth, despite his weakness, this baby who is the greatest of all kings. This is Israel's shepherd. This is God's chosen Messiah. And though everyone else in Bethlehem and Jerusalem may be ignorant, may ignore him, these men from far off lands, these Gentiles of Gentiles, these unbelievers of unbelievers, they come and they adore him. And that's basically all that Matthew tells us. They prostrate themselves before this infant king of kings. They give him their precious gifts. And then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country in another way. So they come, and they worship, and they're warned, and they leave. And Matthew doesn't tell us what kind of conversations Mary had with these men. He, he doesn't tell them if he, he doesn't tell us if, if, if Joseph was home or, or or if he came home to these strange men in his house. He doesn't. He really doesn't tell us much. Well, his focus is on the way that these men honor the Christ child. How they do the only logical thing, despite how illogical it may look, and then they leave. And beloved, this is a strange story. And despite its strangeness and exoticism, it it, it looks like a small stage story. We don't see the king we might have expected if we were just reading Micah chapter 5. We see a baby. And and the title of the sermon promised nations, but, but, but all we've seen here were just a few men coming in to honor this baby. But beloved, this trickle of treasure that comes in here will soon become a flood as the baby sitting in Mary's lap is shown to be son of God. And the promises spoken in Psalm 87 will come true as the nations begin following the death and the resurrection and the ascension of this same Christ. The nations begin to flood in. And beloved, they're still streaming in today. Don't forget, most of us are not Jews. Most of us are not physical descendants of Abraham. 
you may have thought that priests and wizards from, from Persia and Babylon were exotic and unexpected, but, but just look a few centuries further in church history as, as, as the pagans and the, and the cannibals of, of northwestern Europe show up. And then just look a few more centuries beyond that as, as the news of this Christ spreads all over the world until the earth is, is, is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Beloved, it starts as a trickle here in Matthew 2, but we know it today as a flood. And in this we rejoice, or I should say we, we should rejoice. Because I mentioned earlier how Herod and the Jewish leaders and the Magi, they were all presented with the same information and each of them did very different things with that information. Now, beloved, today we have been confronted with the exact same information. Matthew has clearly demonstrated to us that this child with Mary is God's promised Messiah. This is the one that God has set aside from before the beginning of the world to be the shepherd of his people. This is the one that God has set aside from before the beginning of the world to be the savior of his people. And in the gospel according to John, we're told this, that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but, but of God. And by the mercy of God, we are all presented with this possibility. We too can become children of God. We too can say that we are the sons and daughters of Abraham. We too can say that we are the people of Zion. We can become the citizens of God's kingdom. We can become citizens of Jerusalem if we will but come and adore him, Christ the Lord. Amen.